Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to continue my series of spotlighting this season's shows by presenting my episode with actor, composer, screenwriter, and playwright Douglas Lyons. Douglas is currently appearing in Parade on Broadway at the Jacobs Theatre. If I may do a bit of editorializing, Parade is one of the most moving and beautifully performed pieces of theatre in New York right now. Waste no time in buying a ticket. Douglas has also appeared on Broadway in Beautiful and The Book of Mormon, as well as in Ragtime, Cinderella, Hello Dolly, Dreamgirls, and Rent around the country. In addition to this, his play Chicken and Biscuits opened on Broadway in 2021, and he has written musicals including Five Points, Fatigue, and Polka Dots. And now, without further ado, here's Douglas Lyons. So I'd love to um, start us off by asking, how did you first get interested in theater? So I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. I am a PK, a preacher's kid. And I always say that the church is very parallel to the theater. Um, But at 16, after years of like singing in church and doing some dancing school stuff, never having professional acting training, I encountered the national tours of Rent and Cats, which came through the Schubert Theater, downtown New Haven, Connecticut. And it was the first time I was like, oh, like they're doing all the things that I sort of do separately in this one art form that I didn't have a name for. I would learn that it was called musical theater. Um, But I had done little theatrical things, like I did a play at Yale Rep when I was 12 or 13, and Galileo Galilei is like the prince. But I wasn't really a theater kid, I would say, until my late teens, kind of right before college. Uh, and were your parents supportive of this interest? And Oh, yeah. I mean, they didn't know what it was. <laughs> um, I distinctly remember fall of 2003, because I graduated 2004 spring from high school, um, applying very late to theater programs. I applied to four. The only one that I got into was the Hart School where I went. But um, in the spring when we got all the, you know, acceptance letters, because I also had like a possible like dance major for like tap and then secondary education mathematics was going to be my backup because I was really good with numbers and I was thinking maybe I could teach. But then I got into this one theater program and my father, I'll never forget this, we put out all the acceptance letters on the dining room table. And he was like, okay, so what do you want to do? And I was like, that one. And he was like, okay, I'm going to ask one more time. What do you want to do? And I was like, that one. And he was like, okay, all right. You know, and that spring I did West Side Story. It was my one and only musical in my high school. It was not a theater high school. It was a science and business magnet school. Um, but I played Tony. All the Jets were Black. All the Sharks were Latino, given our demographic. And... But I like fell in love with that sort of interaction with the audience and 
I had way too much makeup on. Um, it was like a 200 seat, you know, high school auditorium, but I was like giving you Broadway phantom beat. Why? We don't know. Um, but yeah, they, they were immensely supportive and I think they saw a spark in me. Um, and it was really a test because I didn't really know much about musical theater. Like I didn't own any musical theater CDs when I went to college. My very first CD was winter of 2004, my freshman year, and they got me ragtime. That was, I remember being like, oh, this is musical theater in my hands for the first time. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what was the process like at college of sort of finding your niche in terms of the type of stuff you'd be going up for and all that? What's interesting, um, niche is an interesting word when you're a person of color um because you kind of got to get in where you fit in given what you're being taught and like what the golden age of musical theater is which is now you know it keeps changing obviously with like things like rent and spring awakening and hamilton you know what is sort of the staple musicals are changing but you know now almost 20 years ago oh my um it was it was different uh, I actually took a leave of absence between my sophomore and junior year to tour with Rent. And that experience, I was a swing, taught me where I could be in the business. And coincidentally, when I returned um, fall of 2007 to the Hart School, I got my first two principal roles in the program. One was a new musical called Marielle, and it was in our black box. And then the main stage we did that year was Parade, and I played... Jim Conley. Um, and I went, oh, well this, okay, I can do this. I am capable of this. That's pretty cool. Um, but I think I've always sort of gone for everything, if you will. I feel like a, a smart actor doesn't just fit in. They create their own path because you sort of have to. That's what sort of led me to writing as well. Um, and so, yeah, college taught me about traditional musical theater, but then given my voice and my race, you know, I had to figure out another way to navigate the industry because there were only select roles, I think, at the time, you know, the Cole Houses, which I ended up playing at the Fifth Avenue, um, you know, Violet Flick, which I, that was sort of my audition, big audition song. Um, there were roles, but I feel like post-college I've learned it's really you creating a goal of what you want from the industry and casting beginning to understand your flexibility as an actor. Like I've played a drag queen, I've played a Ugandan and Mormon, I've played Cole House, you know, I've played the 1960s doo-wop, right? Like I've had an array of roles um, and I'm always challenging myself to make sure that I don't get pigeonholed. Right. And what was the process like of taking on that role of Call House? So like vocally challenging and emotionally complex? And... In that particular production, we actually, there was no ensemble. There were like 16 oh. or 17 actors. Um, Kendra Kassabaum was in that. Uh, Danielle Fulton, my Sarah, as I call her all the time. Um, so we were playing Cole House and Sarah, but then we would run off stage, do a quick change and come back on and be like an immigrant in a scene. Oh. It was a very supportive show that way, which made it exhausting. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was exhausting. Uh, but I surprised myself. I think 
my trajectory and understanding of myself as an artist is and parade is sort of the culmination of all of you know these lessons is I'm capable of a lot more than I give myself credit for if I just breathe and trust that I can do it. And so doing Cole House was a mammoth role and I was the role. I remember getting a call. I was in Minneapolis putting up a new musical of mine and my manager was like, yeah, you, you got it. And I was like, I did. I think I'm <laughs> always very surprised. And sort of the newness of that is no longer being surprised and owning my word for this year is owning that I deserve these things. So Cole House was vocally challenging. I am, I have a bit of a flexible range. So it was a little bit too low for me. Um, so we had to like bump up some of the keys like a half step, but it was a miracle and I like won some kind of award out there for like leading actor, you know, their local wow. awards, which is cool. Um, and it proved to me that I was capable of a lot more than I think I am. So I'm, that was now six years ago, but it was, uh, it was awesome. It was really awesome to be like a professional leading actor at a major regional theater. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's great. And so I know you worked with a few sort of theater veterans early on, like Sally Struthers and Leslie Uggams and Cinderella. And what did you sort of learn from watching these older performers? And I, there's a sense of fearlessness when you've lived, I think, and you're a veteran in the business. And so Sally was all about choices when we did Hello Dolly. This is summer of 2006. Um, actually, the summer that I got the call that I booked rent, I would leave oh. Gunkwood a little early to go on the rent tour. And um, But she every night it was a different choice. And she had this relationship with the audience that was palpable. You could just tell that she had them in the palm of her hand. Um, and Leslie Uggams was grace. Uh, personified. She was Grace. She played the fairy godmother in Cinderella. I was the cheese seller. Thank you very much. Um, and she she would sing that um, There Is Music In You and just her, her vowel. I remember her vowels. <laughs> her vowels were so open and so glorious. And I was just standing there aghast like, jeez, this, this is history, you know. Um, but she was grace. So I learned grace and how to stand and how to embody and, you know, to sort of float and open on the stage from her. Um, is really, and I was like 19 at the time. So it was, it was, it was crazy and an honor. And um, I'll never forget. I only did two performances with Cinderella and then I left, but she asked me, I think we were in tech. She was like, Douglas. I said, yes, Miss Uggams. She said, are you ready for your tour? Are you prepared? And I said, I think so. She said, okay. And I'll, I'll never forget that. Yeah. Oh, that is great. And so how did uh, Book of Mormon come about? Was that your first Broadway audition at that point? Or? Oh, no. Not my first Broadway audition. So I, I have always been a go-getter. Like, that is just how I am. My freshman year of heart, I actually got my first Broadway callback. And I had to leave because I had to go back to class. Um, but it was for a young Frankenstein. Um, so I, I had been called back for various things over the years. Um, and I was up for like the hair revival, but I already had the Dream Girls tour at that time. Like I, I was always on, you know, the grind. Um, and I made that a personal goal while I was in college so that these casting directors knew me 
and that I also had relationships, you know, and I wasn't graduating college and then going for the big dream. Um, Mormon, I first went in for Mormon when I got back from the Dream Girls tour. I was doing the human comedy at the Astoria Performing Arts Center, um, Galt McDermott's other show besides Hair, and uh, got the appointment for Swing and went in and got a call back and was like, oh, okay. And I had just seen the show in like February. So this is like April time, actually like right around now, uh, 12 years ago. And then had a second call back where we danced. And I think that was for Casey and we sang again. And then got a call that there was a third callback and it was on a on like a like a friday or something like that and we went in the room again and mind you it was three of us it was down to three of us and between the other two gentlemen they had seven broadway shows and i had zero and so i was like i'm not getting this job like it's just uh i i know i'm not getting this job again the stories we tell ourselves um and yeah I, uh, we had that final callback and it was like a couple days later, like three or four days later. And I was checking in with them because at the time Mormon was like the show, you know, everybody wanted to do it and it was everywhere. And, uh, I'll never forget. I woke up from a nap and my agent at the time called me and he was like so do you want to be on broadway and i was like are you kidding and again i couldn't believe it i like went to the gym and was on the treadmill and then i like walked from blink in astoria all the way like towards manhattan i was just in disbelief and i called my acting teacher henry fonte and was like i'm gonna be on broadway it was a really beautiful moment but it was three or four three or four callbacks and like at one point we we were told they were going to make a decision and then we got a call to come in again so it it was um a bit of a wild moment while i was doing the human comedy at the same time so i had to this seems to be a trend i did the first preview or two shows at the human comedy and then i left to go do mormon uh, yeah and so i know there's been some sort of controversy recently over whether the humor in the book of mormon is offensive and like sort of not what we should be laughing at now and what do you sort of think about that question i think comedy evolves with time so what we found funny in the 90s was not necessarily funny in the early 2000s right it's cultural it's shifting it's ever changing you know sensitivity has changed COVID has changed culture um i think the book of mormon is a smart show I don't think it aims to offend just to offend, but I think where we were in 2011 is not where we are in 2023, and we should not still be in the same places mentally. We should be a lot more aware and careful. So I I can't speak to, I did see it again because I had a friend made his debut in it. Um, And sometimes theater can be dated and that can be okay, you know? but I don't think brilliance suddenly just like wears off. You can't just because culture has changed, we can't decide, well, it's no longer brilliant. It's a smart show. It's well-constructed. Is it insensitive to things that we have, you know, grown to understand more? Possibly. Absolutely. But let's talk about that and let's see why. And like, so let's not like cancel the show. In my opinion, it's like, let's talk about 
why and where it's problematic. Um, and so as we write, you know, for the future, we try to avoid those things. I think it's more of a conversation than it is like a binary rule of what the show is. But I think inside the show, having done the show, and I did it on the first national tour, I would leave the Broadway company and be the ADC on stage. It was awesome. But after two years total, it was like time for my spirit to sort of let the Book of Mormon be someone else's blessing. Um, but I think it's aiming to say things that you really have to pay attention to and not just the like stereotypes that you see on the stage. Um, anytime there are <clears throat> African-American characters on stage that are not written with a certain depth, I always find it my personal job to find the humor and the intelligence and the wit of the character. Um, and I, so I'm always playing that, you know, and how you receive that is on you, I say. But having done the show, I thought those characters were very much in on the joke and they were not like victims of the jokes, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. So when you're doing a show like Book of Mormon or Beautiful, which you also did for quite a while, how do you sort of keep it fresh night to night? And is that a challenge? You know, um, I say keeping it fresh is being present. You know, if you start to sort of zone out, then that is when it's not fresh anymore. Um, you also got to listen to your temple when your body is tired. Um, make sure you're not making the show the only thing in your life. I think is very important. Like balance is a thing that I value a lot more than I ever did pre-pandemic. Um, and listening, you know, like you got to be listening, you know, and finding the fun in it every night and finding fun in different places if you can in the show every night um because we're human beings and every show is going to be slightly different and so sort of giving into that and letting it be and you might be vocally tired but you're still in the building so how do you make it work and that makes that show different so it's really a show by show thing um you can only make it as fresh as you are listening right because you you just you're doing the same thing every night, but it's the way that you do it and the way that you play it that can be fresh. And we talked about the the humor and the fun of Book of Mormon. And what do you think made Beautiful such a big hit? Uh, um, Douglas McGrath, may he rest in peace. I still can't believe I'm saying that. Uh, wrote a phenomenal book that streamlines what I would call the traditional rom-com formula into a contemporary musical. And so he was so smart in making us fall in love with their story and wanting to see them come out on top. As you have that like, you know, I want musical theater of Carol wanting to be a songwriter. It's the same alphabet, you know, I wanna meet the wizard. There's like very crux things in musicals that make us root for characters and their, you know, success. And so I think the secret sauce was the book, which made people laugh, but also made people love. And it celebrated music and friendship and, you know, difficult love relationships. And it was relatable. I mean, it was obviously an artist that folks adored, but it was the way we told the story. I, I think a lot of it was sort of that rom-com sweet love story that fell on people and reminded them of the first time they, you know, met the person they would marry, you know? Um, and how sometimes the most beautiful stories can be the most 
simplistic love stories. So I think that's why Beautiful lasted. The music, but then also the way that Mark Bruni also framed the show and it in a very small and smart way earned itself along the way. Oh, yeah. And what makes an ideal director for you to work with? Vision, collaboration, kindness. <laughs> um, kindness is very important. Yeah, vision, collaboration, and kindness, I would say, are vital. Um, you want somebody who shows up and knows the work that they want to accomplish. You want somebody who is willing to give and take in that accomplishment. Um, and then someone who's kind as they accomplish their goals in the room. So it doesn't feel like a dictatorship. It feels like we're building this thing together um, and that it's fun, even when it's difficult. Like in the case of Parade, it was di it's difficult to put up that particular story, but we had fun and love was in the room always. Ah, that is great. And so when did you start um, writing for the theater? Was that during Beautiful or? So I left, part of the reason I left the Broadway company, Book of Mormon, is I had a heartbreak that led me to a guitar that I still cannot play. It's sitting over there. Um, but I went out on tour with Book of Mormon and I met Ethan D. Pakchar, who would become my writing partner. And we started sort of just writing songs first, you know, between shows and after shows. Um, and then we would get other cast members like Michael Kilgore, Marisha Wallace, who's now in the UK blowing up. Uh, to sing our music. And um, there was a lot of DNA for my heartbreak in that album, Hashtag Love Live. But also there was some theater stories, some, you know, small storylines in each song. And that began our journey. That was fall of 2013. We recorded a live album for one night. Um, and I invited a bunch of like theater agents and one that came that we would sign within the spring was Michael Finkel at William Morris. And he was like, you need to write a show. Um, so we then started writing our musicals. And so that's that like began my journey of theater writing was heartbreak to meeting Ethan. Um, and then the rest is sort of history and sort of a winding road of possibilities and friendships and people pulling me into rooms and saying my name and just sort of going for it, honestly. Oh, yeah. And so how did the idea for the Five Points musical come about? And... Yeah, uh, Ethan had seen the Gangs of New York, the film, and he had been asking me since the fall of 2013, did I watch it? Am I familiar with the time period? And I was like, I'm not, and I'm not going to watch that movie. It took me two years to watch <laughs> the movie, but I finally watched it. Um, and he was like, you know, there was these, there were these dance competitions, these battles between... Um, recently <clears throat> emancipated slaves who had this Juba African step dance and Irish, you know, immigrants um, and their native dance as well. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And it felt like it felt like an opportunity to show tension, um, but also the birth of a new American art form, which would be tap dance. And so, yeah, this was like 2014, 2015, we started working on this musical to try to figure out how we could inspire a new generation of theater goers with something very historic that though began as clash ended in art form um, and how that's an analogy of what America could be if we all took a moment to sort of take each other in 
and to see what we can offer each other instead of compete with each other. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of the beginning of Five Points. And musically speaking, using sort of gospel blues roots on the black side and sort of an Irish pop score um, on the white side and how that again clashed to create a score is what we found. And it's been uh, really fascinating. We got a world premiere in 2018 in Minneapolis at the Theater Latte Da and it sold out and extended. Um, and now we've been working with Paper Mill Playhouse. They own the rights to the show right now and developing, it just keeps evolving, you know, sort of keeps evolving. Oh yeah. And what is generally your process of sort of musical research like when you're writing about a specific time period or culture? Well, it ranges. I, the majority of what I write, I would say 90% of the time is completely original. I don't do a lot of adaptation work um, because I want the ability to go in any direction at any given point. And when you're sort of attached to something that has actually happened, it's tricky because you can only dramatize what happened or you're no longer telling that story, the truth of that story. Um, so I call my ideas mosquito bites. Um, like every idea is a mosquito and it sort of flies around me and I spot it away or it'll bite me. And then I'm like, oh crap, I gotta, I gotta write this thing. And so I'll like nibble out, you know, some ideas, but they all really come from my brain typically like polka dots, um, is something that was inspired from a Felicia Rashad interview where she talked about growing up in the Jim Crow South and tasting from a white only water fountain and i was like "Ooh, a little black girl that tastes from a white only water fountain could be in a lot of trouble and but she was brave enough to defy the rules that proved to be useless because it was the same water as a black only water fountain and that became the impetus for polka dots you know a this little girl named Lily Polka Dot, whose skin is all polka dot, but then she is integrated into a school of all squares. And there's the polka dot pump and the square sprinkler. And she's told she's forbidden to drink from the square sprinkler. But, you know, throughout the 90, no, 60 minute musical, she goes and tastes that water, you know, as Felicia Rashad did. And so I was inspired by history um, to create something contemporary for kids to show them that racism is indeed silly and that they can be the next generation to break that chain and to ask questions and taste from other water fountains and challenge the system, which we are seeing right now. Um, so yeah, I, I get inspiration really from original ideas in small places, and then I'll figure out a way to make them theatrical. Oh, yeah. And have there been ideas that you sort of started in the writing process with, but then ultimately decided wouldn't make a good show? Or There's one play that I sort of did before Chicken and Biscuits that uh, we had a table read of, but it, this is like before I was really a writer, um, but it was inspired by an almost school shooting oh. um, where this woman, Antoinette Tuff, stopped a young man like in a secretary's office before he was to go in um and she sort of talked him down he had a gun she like talked him down and i wanted to write something to honor her but it proved not to really be completely theatrical um though it was very dramatic and you know luckily she saved all those kids lives wow. but that would be the only project that i didn't 
really follow through on, but that's because it felt very much like a book report um, than the crafting of a story because how things happen in real life and how you have to make them theatrical are two different things. <laughs> like you have to earn, there's a formula, you know, to make an audience want to sit through a story. Um, but Polka Dots, when it first came to me, it took me nine months to actually approach my collaborators with the idea because I was like, oh, it's, it's that's not going to work. Um, and then it did. It worked very well. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did the idea of four chicken and biscuits come about? And Yeah, so chicken and biscuits is a mixture of many people I know in my life. Again, I'm a PK preacher's kid, so I grew up. Um, in the church. My mother is the first woman pastor at the church I grew up in. Um, and I come from big families. My father is one of eight, my mother one of seven. And so I'm just very familiar with family dynamic. Um, and the comedy that happens, I because I have, you know, big family, I've lost like five or six aunts and uncles. And so I've been to many a funeral, um, where there's lots of personality and lots of clashing sometimes and lots of secrets that are revealed in those spaces and so um chicken and biscuits was originally a shorter play between the queer couple and the parents um but then after going to a funeral in 2017 i think i got inspiration to sort of expand it into what would become the play um so it's inspired by my upbringing by a lot of personalities that I have encountered in real life and in family, and a love letter to Black family that we should have space to heal and to breathe deeply in the American theater. Oh, yeah. And so um, have you had members of your family come to see the play and sort of recognize themselves in it, or? I, oh, oh you're gonna make me cry. I've had, um, my father's siblings, two of them, had never been to a Broadway theater, saw the play in 21, and that was really beautiful to like see them there. And I think they just had an overall pride of, you know, their nephew writing something that would be in a Broadway space. Um, I saw five different productions around the country last fall, early winter, and one of them was in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, my cousin's mother had like a front row seat. And as soon as it was over, she like leapt to her feet and oh. she hugged me after and was like, you did it. You know, she saw a lot of our family in it. It's more so the personalities that they could recognize, but my <laughs> there's a production right now at Oslo Rep. Um, and my mother flew a couple weeks ago in my stead because I can't be there because of parade. So she, <laughs> she flew down in her white pantsuit and saw the show and took pictures with the cast. <laughs> Um, so the play has become sort of a stamp of pride for the family as well. And um, that means a lot to me because it's not just theater. It's in a way legacy and me sort of honoring my family. Wow, that is great. Yeah. And so what was the experience of the pandemic like for you? And were you working on the play a lot during it or? Well, in the pandemic, I received a really huge blessing, which was I got uh, tapped to join the writer's room of Fraggle Rock. And so in June of 2020, when theater was shut down, I actually worked on a, my first television show for 20 weeks. And so I sort of pivoted. I wasn't really working on Chicken. We had a um, benefit reading for a program I've created called the Next Wave Initiative, 
Um, we had that spring of 21, we did a benefit reading with E59 of Chicken and Biscuits, but I hadn't really been working on the play because I was very much in the pandemic and working on Fraggle at the time. Um, but then an opportunity came up at Circle in the Square and I had been talking with a producer, Hunter Arnold, and you know, conversations became reality and then reality became announcement and <laughs> the rest is history. I'm still in shock that it happened, like very much in shock that it happened. But I am so grateful that it happened and the play is exploding. I mean, between now and next summer, between college, non-professional and professional, there are 14 productions of Chicken and Biscuits. Wow. And, uh, like not even for me, for all the black women that get to step into these roles um, as principal actors around the country is the celebration for me. Ah, that is great. And so speaking of that sort of idea of casting, how involved were you in the casting of the Broadway production? And Very much so. Um, so the producers were very kind in sort of giving us leeway. Um, I tapped a TV film casting director, Erica Hart, Erica A. Hart, and she would make her Broadway debut sort of twice because Passover then tapped her, but we got her first. <laughs> um, but I pulled her in because I wanted the show to make sure that we had a Black woman casting Black women. Um, and we were doing a lot of self-tape stuff. I had some travel stuff. So Jalen did some auditions and then I did the final callbacks and it was, you know, a conversation. The story that I love telling is I was in Los Angeles um, right after the announcement and I was up late watching an episode of Mike and Molly and there's this black woman that comes on and she had a scene and I was like, oh, that's that's Benita. And it was Cleo King. Um, and I sent a clip of her reel to casting and the whole team. I was like, she has Benita in her. I don't know that she's done Broadway, but she's she's really, I really see it, you know, see if she's interested and she would end up getting the part. Wow. Um, so yeah, it was a, you know, a huge effort to sort of put it together very quickly because we found out in like May and we started rehearsal in August. So there was availability checks and, Zoom callbacks and in-person callbacks, but um, no, I, I very much had to say so in the casting and um, Michael Yuri had done the spring reading as Logan and was very complimentary about the script. And, and he said, you know, I really loved it. And at that time it was hope, you know, we were hoping that we would get an off-Broadway production following the excitement around it. And then it turned into Broadway and I was like, are you available? And, da -da -da -da. and he was like, oh my God. And there he was. Yeah. Right. And yeah. how did you first meet Jalen Livingston and what was your collaboration like? So we met at a Britain and the Sting concert, their <laughs> first concert. This would be maybe 2018 on June 18th, specifically, possibly. Um, and he was just sitting next to me. I was on an arm of a chair. And uh, I was like, hey, man, how are you? You know, what do you do in the business? Are you in the industry? He's like, I'm a writer director. And I was like, oh, I have this play, Chicken and Biscuits I'm working on. I'm actually looking for a director, you know, maybe check it out. And he flew to LA for something. And then, but like called me and was like, we need to talk. And from like that talk on, he was in the room. So around page 30, he was sort of in the room. And I don't know, the, the play 
we had four readings plus the virtual read um between that conversation and broadway and there was just a lot of love and i think people in readings felt the love of the play and i i feel like that's why it works um and so yeah we just sort of met and then organically kept building yeah and what was it like to have your play be part of that sort of crazy 21 to 22 season coming back from the shutdown and all that yeah, it, it was crazy. It was, I felt like Cinderella at the ball. I kept saying that in like every interview. Um, it, it's tricky because where COVID is now is not where it was then. Right. And so there were a few missed opportunities. Like we wanted to do concessions and have like actual chicken and biscuits available. But like at the time, given, you know, sort of rules we had to kick everyone out of the theater which is like sort of anti what the show breeds which is like love and community um and so there were it was a beautiful moment to have it there but it also was very much in COVID, and we were one of the shows that ended up shutting down because we had an outbreak and so it was stressful and beautiful and wonderful and stressful and beautiful and wonderful. Um, and I'm so very grateful that it happened. I'm so very grateful that it happened and that there is now a black churchy queer play that is in the Broadway history books. Like, I don't know, you know, I feel like my work here is done, you know, it is not done, but like the fact that that happened, I'm just, I am forever grateful. So, you know, yeah. it was, really wonderful too to be one of the seven plays at the time um given all the social justice conversations that had to come out of george floyd i think that heavily influenced the movement but i'm glad for it i'm i'm glad that we got the space to do what we did and now that that has trickled out into regions yeah oh yeah and what sort of advice would you give to regional theaters that are doing the play have fun be authentic um and spread love that's kind of it that, that's the play is not meant to be that serious you know i think people didn't meet it where it was um i, I think in my tv writing i've learned that like you know you have your fluffy stuff you have your like this makes me giggle but it ain't that deep and i think that's where i live theatrically speaking so have fun with the play and like let it be a light and a, you know a good giggle and hug for somebody that's it. That would be my advice. Yeah, yeah. And so after having become a Broadway playwright, were you thinking that that would be sort of your main thing from then on and you wouldn't go back to acting or were you trying to go back to acting right after Chicken Biscuits or how did that work? I wasn't trying to go back um, to anything. Um, <laughs> I think I think I, on top of, chicken so what chicken did do it, it it opened some doors in hollywood for meetings a lot of people wanted to meet me and i actually got a tv deal developmental deal because of chicken and biscuits um so i think i actually skewed my focus to tv as a writer uh because the heartbreak of the show closing early and just feeling like okay we accomplished that but how can we use the momentum from that to right. create a tv space and so that's kind of where I was focused, to be honest with you. Um, 
my one goal is to get one of the musicals that Ethan and I have written to Broadway or in New York, not specifically Broadway. Um, but that became the focus. The focus was like, can I get a musical in New York? Um, because Ethan and I have been working together now for a decade. And we've had, you know, our shows, Bo was produced at the Adirondack Theater Festival and did very well and Five Points, but we haven't had a show in New York. So I think that was sort of my focus. And then there came the parade. And how did that sort of audition come up or was it an offer or how'd that go? I, um, I reached out to Michael Arden because we knew each other peripherally um, through a producer. And when they announced that it was going to City Center, I was like, yo, 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 yo. I did the part in college. I'm interested. Let me know how. Um, got the audition tape, had it sung in months, you know, um, put the tape together and then didn't hear anything. It was like two or three weeks. I didn't hear anything. And I was like, oh, I guess I didn't get that. Um, and then got a text from him that was like, your tape was really great. We're going through the casting process. It's sort of all over the place, but I wanted you to know that you did good work and it landed. Thank you so much. And I, um, I was like, yes and i think there's another character if i remember that has a song you know as long as i have a song in the play i'm down to play in the sand just putting that out there and so shortly thereafter we had a catch-up meeting um like a zoom just to see how life was doing and on that call he was like would you want to do riley for me and i was like are you kidding me absolutely <laughs> um so that was in like august of last summer, I was out of town, I was at P-Town, and I got, we, you know, I got that information, and then there we were in October, rehearsing for City Center. Yeah, and did you have a sense that it would lead to a transfer? Were you told that, or? No, we were not. There were, it's so funny, um, Jay Armstrong Johnson and I were roommates at New York City Center. <laughs> Every day, every other day, we come and be like, did you hear, did you hear anything? I heard she got her contract. I'm not really, I heard they got it. Oh, they didn't get a theater? I'm not really sure. Like we, it, there were many, you know, like mumblings of possibilities, but you know, nothing, you know, given the climate of theater right now and cope, you just never know. And so right. I, no, I, I was very grateful for those three weeks and it was a wonderful time. Um, and then we heard sort of whispers and then we got some sort of confirmation but then the theater was changing and then i hadn't still didn't have an offer um but that came like right before christmas and so then it was a decision if i wanted to do it because something i'm trying to be very aware of is how to make space for life and balance um and when you're doing eight shows a week six days a week you can only do so much and i have a full writing career so at one point i was like i don't know if i want to do it and um through the negotiation process we were able to figure out a way for me to do everything and not to really have to give up one thing to do the other and so here i am yeah oh yeah that's great and have you had the chance to go on yet for jim conley or a night with new lee you i have not i have not it i don't hope that it happens because that <laughs> would mean something bad happens uh to someone else or they have to miss but uh i think there could be a possibility before the end of the run yeah oh yeah i rehearsed for it for the first time this past week and had a ball so that was fun oh. 
And what was it like to have this protest on the first preview that? Funny is I expected it. I expected worse, to be honest with you, given just the state of the world right now and the January 6th of it all. Like I, I expected that. I was really astonished it had not happened before. So I wasn't surprised. Um, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it any sort of softer, you know, as a hit. But I think mentally I was prepared for that kind of opposition, given oh. sort of the nature of the piece. And what do you think makes this piece so relevant and so successful now? I think JRB was ahead of his time and he was underappreciated. Um, and people, especially I would say in 1998, I believe when the show premiered, wanted to believe that everything was fine, <laughs> that race relations were fine. No, but there are black people on the stage. Everything's fine. You know, as a culture, we were like every, you know, we're all in our little pods, but you know, we can giggle, but like racism, no. <laughs> and there was a denial of this story then. And now because of social media, you cannot deny these stories any longer. We are visibly seeing them in real time every day. So it's speaking to a generation of people that are ready to deal with America as she really is. And um, I think it's sung differently. You know, Jason was saying this is one of the best sung productions he's ever heard. Um, I think more pop music has made its way, obviously, into musical theater. And so he wrote a pop gospel, you know, musical theater score. And now those voices are actually on it. So I think that also is meeting the time. Um, and anti-Semitism is on the rise and very much in the conversation right now. So I think all of those roads are leading to this being the perfect moment um, for this show to be seen. And it's a thrill and an honor to be a part of it. Oh, yeah. And it is a beautiful production. It is. And what has your process been like with the role of Riley and doing some sort of research and all of that? Well, he is one of the characters I think added into the story. Um, right. I'm sure the Slaytons did have help, uh, but he is not, I think, pulled from actual history. It has been tricky given the time period and given, you know, the fact that we did not have a voice and that also this is not our story. You know, this is not Emmett Till's story. This is Leo Frank's story. Um, so building up the stamina to be able to hold and withstand the hate that's spewed in the piece, but also knowing that you're committed to telling the story for a bigger purpose um, has been sort of a mental adjustment because it's so different than doing beautiful. You know, <laughs> um, we show up every night and someone is publicly harmed, you know, in the play. So um, I don't know. I've, as we've opened and continued performances, I'm finding my moments of breath and joy within it, but I have a pride in telling it every night. Oh yeah, that's great. And so what are you sort of looking to do next in terms of projects? Would you like to do another Broadway show as an actor or more TV writing or all of the above? <laughs> I, I'm not going to say no to anything. I think, to be honest, the Broadway schedule is hard for me in my mind. Like I am currently working on a commission that's due the day we close because uh -huh. it has a workshop this fall. 
Um, and I got word last weekend that a TV show that I sort of pitched got a developmental offer. So we are um, we are multi hyphening out here. Yeah. We are open to what you know the universe brings to us. I don't. I did not plan you know parade to be happening. I never thought I'd be on Broadway again as an actor. To be honest with you, after Chicken, I was like, you were into. You wrote one. Cool. And I'm like how did i end up in this costume i am back on this stage um so yeah i don't i don't know i'm not looking i think to do more shows i really by 40 would like to establish myself as a tv writer showrunner and creator of new content um but if broadway calls i ain't gonna say no you know what i mean um so it's a conversation but my goal i think is going to be a little bit more hollywood based you know, in my first spot, but I still love theater and we'll see things. And I still have literally four or five projects that are pending or getting production. So. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And so the final question I'd love to ask is with such a wonderful career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? Know what you want to say know that people may not want to hear it find um find your tribe of people that really get you not just as an artist you know and make sure that you are not making this business the most important thing in your life that you really feel like you have solid ground and soil under your feet because it's a very strenuous and frustrating industry um there's far more talent than there is jobs and so just give yourself grace and know that like it ain't always you you're not the problem um and it may take a while but use every part of yourself to make sure that you feel like an artist and not just an actor and artistry can come in 12 different ways. Like I have friends that have pivoted to podcasting and they're making money. I have friends that are, you know, influencers that are making six figures, you know, they're actors, but they also do other things that give them life. And so just make sure you're living a full life because um, you will not get your life back if you don't have the career that you wanted. Yeah. That is great advice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great. And Absolutely. Very nice meeting you. Oh, yeah. You Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time to hear my interview with Pulitzer Prize winner David Auburn, who is the playwright of this season, Summer 1976, which is now on Broadway starring Laura Linney and Jessica Hecht. His other plays include Proof, The Columnist, Lost Lake, Skyscraper, and We Had a Very Good Time. He also served as script consultant on Tick, Tick, Boom off-Broadway, and his screenplay credits include Georgetown, The Lake House, and The Girl in the Park. You won't want to miss that episode, so make sure to tune back in, and thanks for listening.